egotistical, so unpredictable Here on the SNL Network Yes, welcome on in everybody to the Saturday Night Network here for another patron feedback show to wrap up the Jenna Ortega week of Saturday Night Live and look ahead to the Quinta Brunson week coming up at the beginning of April. Only six episodes left and we have a fantastic one, I hope, coming up soon. And I've been really looking forward to this patron feedback show because it is always a pleasure to get to talk to this amazing patron and wonderful SNL guest. It is Casey Killingsworth. Casey, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, in this season of SNL, uh, when it came back from Christmas, it uh, came out hot, got off to a really strong mid-season start. It's been a little bumpy road, been a little rocky in the middle, but I think we're on the right path. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's dive right in and start talking about this episode a little bit, Casey. So like you said, I mean, I think you sort of felt the way that I felt about the season, which is that we had a really great run going and then we hit a major stop for a little bit and it's been bumpy over the last few episodes. But how did you feel about what we got to see this week with Jenna Ortega and the 1975? I thought Jenna Ortega was uh, the strongest host of this three-week run of shows she really bought a you know the right energy that the show needed um yeah just um yes yeah, some yeah just a young actress who's you know making her big break and putting herself out there has really proved herself who's earned her shot to be on the show and you know, that's good to see after uh you know woody kind of well, I wouldn't say disappoint us, but left us kind of baffled. And Travis Kelsey, yeah, he was strong. But it's nice to see someone with some, you know, training and acting and comedy host the show again. And they they really knew how to use her and play to her strengths as a performer. And I, I really like what we got this week. Absolutely. Do you think, like, you know, a few years down the road, you would want to come back and rewatch this Jenna Ortega episode? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, if not the whole thing, just at least some sketches of it. I mean, I'd, I'd watch it if it played on, uh, you know, SNL vintage at, uh, eight or nine o'clock where I live in a year. So I think it'd definitely be worth rewatching. And I think she'd be worth, uh, bringing back a, a second time as a host. What were those sketches that really stood out to you that you would want to see on a rewatch? Um, the ridiculousness sketch I thought was uh, really funny. Um, Ooh, this is a hot take. Okay, give it. Tell me why. <laughs> I just uh, it was the first, like I said in my blog, it was like the first sketch that really got me on board with that whole episode. Just, um, just it felt like um, it felt like something they should have did in like season forty. Well, they kind of did this in season forty-two with Kristen Stewart, but they added just a an extra layer of strangeness of it, and it showed like. Like they really knew, you know, Jenna's acting range, how to use her, and um, uh, they really it showed that they really played to her strengths as a performer. And um, uh, yeah, the, the X Men sketch was pretty funny too. That that grew on me. Just you know, more strong performances, and um, uh, yeah, just. Um, I love this, by the way, Casey, because I think that the ridiculousness sketch was my personal least favorite of the night. And I just, you know, I, I respect and admire your SNL brain and your memory for, you know, sketches from 
decades ago and really being able to like compare and make references and all that stuff. So I have to just inquire a little bit more. What was it about that sketch that worked so well for you? It was just that it was so weird. This is this weirder, darker edge to it that, um, yeah, I mean, it showed they knew how to tap into Jenna Ortega's strengths from like, and they saw her on Wednesday and in Scream and they, it felt like the first thing that, you know, really played into like her penchant for just, uh, just odd, moody horror roles. And, um, yeah, it was the first thing that really suited her, uh, that night. See, I love that. I didn't even think of that. That That's a great point. I mean, you know, if I understand correctly, when I'm watching that sketch and when I go and I'll, and you know, I always go back and watch these episodes a few times when I go back and watch it, basically what you're saying is, is like, we're so used to seeing Jenna in roles where she's playing the kid that's like, looks great on the outside, but on the inside is like evil and twisted. And that's really what Wednesday Adams is as a character, right? Yeah. Like they played into that better than they did at the, um, the exorcist sketch. Cause that, like the exorcist sketch was too pandery, too boilerplate. Felt like, oh, we had to do this. She's she's known for horror. Let's have her play Reagan and let's bring in Ego Wodum as the lady who's having none of this nonsense. That didn't that felt too unambitious for me, but the ridiculousness felt um just had that extra layer and and it also um I just thought of the um the varsity high, the uh Waffle House pre take, because that was that and ridiculousness kind of go hand in hand because Jenna Ortega is 20 years old, kind of the new young Hollywood it girl. So we were kind of expecting um, like a young pandery show. I was thinking, oh, they're going to do another TikTok thing again. Uh, maybe we'll get something different, but they didn't do that. They they kind of they kind of pulled a bait and switch on us with that stuff. It's like you think you're getting ridiculousness and you think you're getting just high school teen romance melodrama when suddenly there's, you know, decapitations and cat ball stories and then just just chaos in the background of a of a waffle house while two teens are, are breaking up. See that's that's the type of thing I like to see them do that's different that um you know, just something out of the box like that every once in a while. Yeah, I, I love that perspective. I mean, we didn't get to really talk about that sketch all week throughout the podcast. So uh, it's great to get to do that. And, you know, going down the rundown, I think like, you know, if you like that sketch, then a lot of the rest of the episode really works for you. So I think that positively, this was a great episode. And I'm excited to talk about it and other aspects of SNL in season 48 and what we're going to look forward to. So Casey, would you like to get into the questions from this week? Uh, sure, let's do it. For sure. And if you would like to send in your questions for this show or any other patron feedback show, you can always do that. We post our patron feedback question forms the day before on Twitter and in our Instagram stories. So make sure to do that for the final patron feedback shows of the season throughout the rest of the spring. But for now, tonight, we got some really great questions. And I'll start off with one from my friend Thomas Senna, who wanted to know, as we head into the home stretch of the season, I think that the Jenna Ortega episode might be my favorite so far. Do you think it's a legit contender for best episode of the season so far? And what other episodes do you think are in the mix? So what do you think, Casey? Well, I, yeah, as much as I like this episode, it was 
barely made my top five of the season. I think I think the strongest contenders for best of the season would be that December, January run that we got, especially January, because right now my best of the season was the uh, the Aubrey Plaza and Sam Smith episode and uh, the Michael B. Jordan and Little Baby episode was just uh, second behind that. And um, yeah, just that run of shows between um, you know, Kiki and Steve Martin, Martin Short and Austin Butler, they would be, you know, my, well, that two, at least two of those would be in my bottom three. And I, I do have to admit I have to, this, this might not be a hot take, but it might ruffle some feathers, but hear me out. I would still say, uh, the Dave Chappelle and Blackstar episode would be in my top five just because of the sketches. I mean, yeah, the, the monologue was very, very, iffy and that uh, yeah even i have problems with it but but the sketches all the way through were really solid i like what we got sketch wise from dave because um you know i've always you know been a fan of dave Chappelle when Chappelle's show was kind of big and i've always kind sure. of i've kind of struggled with his stand-up at times but if anything this that episode he hosted this season really cemented for me that I was always just a fan of Chappelle's show more than I was of Chappelle's stand-up. And I think part of that is just, you know, my love of you know, SNL from childhood and all other sketch comedy, Mad TV, Kiss in the Hall, everything. But just, you know, Chappelle came up at the right time. So, yeah, it's been more. I've Like our friend Andrew Dick says, he abides more by, like, with Norm MacDonald, he abides more by, like, sketch norm than update norm. I abide more like, Get Chappelle than monologue uh, stand-up Chappelle, me personally. Yeah, uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with feeling like you like the Chappelle episode. I don't think you're necessarily saying by liking that episode or anybody would say that like we support everything that Dave Chappelle says or does just because we enjoy his episode. So yeah, I think it was a very good episode and uh, unique in its own way. And I think that this question um, is a really interesting one from Thomas here because I don't know that it was the best of the season for me. I think that it was certainly a very good episode of the season. But last year, I had a way easier time pointing out which episodes were so great because they were a little bit more few and far between. Like, I think that... Rami Malek, Jason Sudeikis, and Kieran Culkin were all very good episodes, but Jason Sudeikis' episode in 47 was clearly outstanding. And then John Mulaney's episode from last season was clearly like fantastic as well. So those two absolutely stood out for me. And I look back at the episodes this season, and I'm not like, oh, it's this one that I absolutely gravitate towards. But I do think like in the Stephen Marty episode, there was some really great stuff. Kiki Palmer was fantastic as a host. Um, you know, Austin Butler, the episode was really good. Uh, obviously, it's going to always be remembered for Cecily's goodbye. But I really think that Aubrey Plaza episode was probably you know, overall top to bottom, my favorite of the season, just in terms of just like the, you know, that, you know, was so opposite of Woody for me, where like, I expected a party for Woody, and it was like a complete disappointment. But the Aubrey one was like, yeah, like, you know, if people were excited, she was gonna host and maybe like somebody could show up. But I didn't necessarily expect that like, party atmosphere we were gonna get to kick off 2023. And I really felt like it was just a huge boom to my experience watching the show this calendar year by having that episode be so strong. And then, of course, Michael B. Jordan, Pedro Pascal were also very good episodes. So 
I, I think for me, you know, it's it's tough to point out in this season where the quality has been much higher than previous years, which episodes were were like, you know, sort of stand out above the rest. But I think it's probably the Aubrey one if I had to pick. Yeah, and I think another thing that made Aubrey Plaza's episode so great, besides just her, you know, having experience in, you know, comedy and drama and having range as an actress and just being someone people want to see because of her work with Amy Poehler is that um uh, just she's like us in that she had a you know a more a lifelong passion and love of the show maybe she had more connections that got her an internship but yeah she you could tell she wanted to be on this show for a very long time and she put in the work uh just starting out as an intern and basically just stalking amy poehler until she just just asking her for a job working for her and then amy just relented and said well you could you you could here's how you apply to become an intern and work with the the set department so yeah she yeah she put in the work to someday be on that show i mean she auditioned to be in the cast and didn't get it but she put in the work to get on camera on that show someday no matter what it took um even if she was a background extra she her end game was a host and you know she you know she got other roles probably you know to fulfill her own other creative passions but yeah she i mean she did whatever it took as far as just starting out as an intern and getting all these big you know dramatic movie and tv roles to you get to be in something big enough to host so so yeah that played into it too and she really brought that to the screen that show through totally agree all right, nice. let's take this uh, next question that came in from Jeremy Boulard. And Jeremy asks, what members or which members of the writing staff are having the best season so far? So I think this is a good question, Casey, because, you know, we do talk a lot about who we see on the screen. And uh, yes, there are some writers who do appear on screen naturally. But, uh, you know, it is a good question since we don't get to always talk about the writers, about which ones we feel are having the best season. So do you have a pick here? Uh, well, I, I have to say by default, um, uh, PED, please don't destroy. Um, I mean, they're the only writers who get to be on screen and have their own sketches without being in the cast. And maybe, again, maybe connections have something to do with that. I don't know, but, but yeah, they're the ones who just, um, just cause they're getting the most recognition and they're, uh, putting out the, the most work. They know how to play the game. They, they know how to do pre-tapes themselves and they know how to you know, do live sketches. They know how to play to uh, like you've seen with Sarah Sherman and others. Yeah, they know how to play to the sketch strengths. And um, yeah, they're even willing to write something that um, people could, you know, take or leave just to get on, just to get out there. And they're already, um, they're already working on their own movie. I don't know if that means they're leaving SNL behind, but they're, they're putting in the work that grind to, even if, SNL's a stepping stone for them. They're really making the most of their time here by doing what they're doing. So, so yeah, I'd, I'd have to say uh, PDD are having the best um, two seasons in a row by default. Yeah, I think it's a great answer and a natural one to give. I think, you know, Colin Jost's writing this season has really impressed me, stepping down from head writer and then being put in a position to, you know, focus on update and not have to write something every single week. But he's written a lot of pre-tapes this season that I think are really 
strong. I would say that Nordwin and Dicenzo, the writers that have wrote, you know, they write most of the monologues. I think they've continued to do a really good job and they've been involved in a lot of good sketches. And I think Mikey and Streeter have been very solid this season. I've talked a lot this week about Mikey Day and my, um, you know, like how impressed I am with him in this seventh season of his, which I think is probably, it could be his best season, honestly, just the way that he continues to push himself and bring him, put himself in new roles. I think, uh, you know, Streeter probably has a lot to do with that as well, with them being inspired to continue to be creative and put out good work. And they were, I mean, they were all over the rundown this week. So for me, I have to shout out that I think they're doing a really good job. I don't feel like I've seen enough uh, from them and that their writing is stale. And we used to say, like, we know what a Mikey Streeter sketch looks like. I don't feel like we do that now. So I would have to say, uh, give them a little bit of a shout out. Yeah, definitely. They've been, um, they've been working on the show almost a decade now. So again, they've really been putting in that grind, knowing how to play the game. Uh, Mikey's a cast member and he's been acting to in other stuff for years before, like even a decade before he, like Keenan said, he was on Wild Now season one. That was 2005, 2006. So he's, he's been playing the long game. And he, I mean, I mean, sometimes they've written some stuff that was kind of eh, but you know, they, they've been putting in that grind and that work too, to, to get the recognition that they deserve. For sure. All right, let's take this question from Blood Meridian, continuing continuing to break records for longest questions of the season as they continue to send stuff in. So uh, thanks, Blood, for this. When season 48 first started, it felt like Sarah and James's journeys were wildly different, with Sarah being on a hot streak for a majority of the first half of the season, doing a number of very well-received sketches and desk pieces alongside fun support work while James's season was quieter with a few utility roles here and there and basically being the cold open guy with barely any of his talents being showcased. Then came the second half, which was almost the total opposite for both cast members, as James got at least one major showcase in each of the six episodes, with all being well-received and some being the more popular ones of the season, becoming also such a vital backbone to the show and a saving grace throughout this half of the season. Sarah, on the other hand, besides her sketch in the Michael B. Jordan episode and a desk piece in Travis Kelsey's, feels mostly invisible, and when not being so, was mostly cast in generic bland roles such as the majority of her appearances in the aforementioned Travis Kelsey episode. What are your own views on both of our sophomore performer seasons so far, and what are your hopes and expectations for both of these in the last few episodes? Thanks as always, and keep it up. So I think Blood did a really fantastic job, you know, discussing our thoughts and views and perceptions of these two cast members which is they have definitely had some ups and downs though we believe that they are very strong you know generational cast members so how do you feel about them casey well i feel like yeah they're both strong performers they're both some of the best hiring decisions uh, lauren and company made in the past uh, few years and i don't think there's any really any real rhyme or reason or contributing factor as to, you know, one getting on air a lot and the other uh, kind of struggling. I think it, it might just be, um, it might just be just the differences in their style of humor, because, you know, we know, we know Sarah Sherman used to be Sarah Squirm and she was, um, and still kind of is into a lot of blood and gore 
poop and vomit, just Cronenberg body horror. And not a lot of hosts who don't know the cast members that well are going to go for that. And even, even she's given us a lighter version of that on the show these past seasons. So, um, and you know, James Austin Johnson, I think the show has, um, he's, you know, earned his trust from the cast and the writers. Hey, yeah, at first you'd see, oh, he's a new guy for political impressions. They brought him on to do Trump and Biden, but they're having him do less of that a year and a half, two years later, and more of him just doing uh, his his own original characters. Uh, I mean, he's figured out a way to work with, um, you know, Diz Mukes and writers like Dan Bulla to get his stuff on, his view, his voice literally on. So I think just, yeah, it might be some people just see, I mean, compared to Sarah's more extreme tendencies as a comedian, people might see J.A.J. as more of um, he's more of an affable guy, more of a just just a guy who wants to do silly characters, and that's all. So it might just be J.A.J. having just a more easygoing style of comedy than Sarah, but it also might be, um, it also may, maybe determination plays into it because we've heard about some some of the, the great memorable sketches in SNL history like uh, Cowbell and McGruber and those are things that um respectively Will Farrell and Yorma Taconi have said that they have had to pitch like five times to get on the air. And uh yeah, they've been up there and you know, they're up there with SNL's history. So yeah, maybe she maybe Sarah has a banger of a weird out there sketch that she's just waiting for the right host to pitch it to and you know maybe james does too maybe he really wants something to get on he's uh pitching multiple times and maybe he's done that so um it's just it's just that and just the the luck of the draw roll the dice um you know every cast member has their ups and downs in snl history when they when they don't get a lot on one week and the next week they score their big recurring character that they go on to make like 10 sketches and they do when they come back to host. So uh, it's just kind of the, kind of the randomness of the way uh, SNL works really. Yeah, I agree with that. I I think James is, you know, trajectory is slightly more, uh, linear in its like ability to follow it. Like I think it's you know he grows and then maybe like had a little bit of a sophomore slump at a start to the season that was unexpected, but then he sort of figured it out pretty quickly and uh, you know has been really great since then. Sarah's has been certainly more puzzling for me. Uh, you know, and I talked about this a little bit on by the numbers last night, where I was just I'm just surprised because I feel like. Casey, you know the concept of uh, a floor and a ceiling, like, you know, it's a sports term that like people use a lot of times when we talk about like the capacity at which that they can achieve versus like the bot how they bottom out. I- I'm familiar with that. Yeah. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, I feel like uh, James's floor is higher than Sarah's floor. So Sarah can like completely bottom out in an episode and appear in like 15 seconds of a, sh- of a given night, which is dangerous because... I think for a cast member like her, uh, it's crucial to have her as an aspect of the show when you have such a talent. Whereas James, I think his floor is so much higher. Like you're going to have James Austin Johnson at least in a couple minutes of the show. Um, so that's that's what's 
you know, interesting about the two of them and why I think that they are so different, even though they came in the same uh, class, is I just think that, you know, James is just so set up so well that like, it, it would be almost impossible at this point for him to like not be in every given show. But Sarah has such a, um, you know, variety in terms of like what you can see from her on a given night. Like, we don't know if this is going to be a Sarah night or not. And my I was like so wrong about this, you know, over the, you know, that great run. I was like, oh, we finally done it. Like we finally hit it where Sarah is going to have the great nights every single week. And I was wrong. So I sort of feel like the standard deviation between what we're going to get from Sarah is much greater than I thought. Yeah. So it, yeah, it's also more like um, the, the the difference in, in like the types of roles J.J. can play and the types of very niche, bizarre roles Sarah can play. Is that uh, also part of it? Yeah, I, I think that the point that you made about that is definitely accurate. My question is, is like, will SNL lean into Sarah more? Because when they have done it, it's been successful. So what's <laughs> like, why not? Um, you know, I don't know, I guess I, I would be curious, like, I think, you know, when we look back on Sarah Sherman's career, which I hope is a very long one at the show, uh, in a few years time or whatever it is, I hope we're going to say that like, eventually we just clicked to a point where she was just a regular part of every episode. Yeah. I mean, so hopefully someday, I mean, they're both still featured players, so they're both starting out. They both got but not really though. Right. Like, not you know, really. like they are, they are, but like, it's like the most like title doesn't mean anything I've ever seen. Yeah, but they're both still in that early space in their tenure where they have sure. to they have to prove themselves just a little bit more. And you know, there's no doubt in my mind that they're both going to make it to their third season. It's just that um, you know maybe JAJ has a bit of a head start now with you know some of the his character stuff he's gotten on. Um, I think maybe we're waiting for Sarah to um, finally break through with that one special thing that she may have had hidden in her back pocket that you know has a little bit more mass appeal that you know can really land and go viral but is still very very quintessentially sarah and very unique in in her own voice and it's kind of a it's kind of a delicate balance to strike with her and you know who knows how she only she knows how she's going to pull that off so i think we're just waiting for that big sarah breakout moment that's you know something that's her that you know a lot of people like well you know last night casey we were talking on by the numbers about how you know marcelo obviously had like the best week of his career on the show and part of the reason for that was the expectation that there was going to be so many gen z watchers of this show who already knew marcelo from the tiktok uh, <laughs> that they were gonna like you know follow him over to snl so it was like uh, I'm not surprised that they open up on the cold open and there he is where Mario Lopez had no you know, business being the impression in the cold open, but yet they decided to like find a way to put Marcelo front and center for, you know, six minutes or whatever it was. And, um, you know, I sort of feel like that's what they should be doing with Sarah. Like people open up the screen on Saturday nights and they expect to see Sarah Sherman. So I feel like they should be putting her front and center and maybe i'm just you know standing too much but i i feel like my hope and expectation to answer the question blood is that they will figure it out with sarah and that you know she can take one episode off every now and then but the last three episodes like this run was disappointing 
Yeah, I think they figured this out with Bowen and Ego. So um, just as 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 long as they can figure out, um, you know how to. One could say, like you said, people tune into the show. They expect to see Bo and Yang. They expect to see Ego Wodum as uh, they put in the work there. Uh, the stars, they're the centers of the show. So as soon as they can find a way to figure that out with Sarah based on what she's got a specific week, I think I think she's golden. Yeah. All right, let's take this next question from Eric Godding. Eric asks, now that we are six episodes removed from Cecily's departure and the hosts have been two-thirds male, do you feel like the gender balance of the show and its sketches has shifted more male-focused than it has in several years? I, I definitely say the balance of the show has shifted. I don't. I can't say that it shifted to one gender or the other. I mean, it is, um, that, that is especially, um, a hard distinction to make when they've hired someone like Molly Carney, who was their first, um, you know, gender non-binary cast member, uh, in their history. And, uh, they, when that happens, it's hard to tell what they're shifting toward gender wise, but, um, I feel like they're well now that Cecily and Kate and Adi are gone. I feel like they're they're shifting away from the you know the the, the big theater kid energy that um, that you know those girls and uh, Taryn and that like season forty ish cast brought to the show. The people that weren't the stand ups of that era. I think I think we're shifting away from that, but it's been baby steps because there's. There's less of that vibe, but we don't quite know what what vibe or what they're shifting toward next because they've you know they've hired so many new people in recent years and they're <coughs> they're still trying to figure out their own voice and they're still trying to figure out what they can bring to the show and um, yes the veterans are people who've been who you know, like Heidi, who've been kind of hanging back and have had some breakout sketches, but maybe not to the point where they're the stars of the show or they're carrying the show. I mean, I mean, maybe Chloe Feynman is the last remnant of that uh, big theater kid, big female-focused era. Maybe she's the last shred of that, but I, I don't know that that's gonna gonna dominate the show. I mean, maybe with you know, Bo and Yang, it might. Um, yeah, maybe with Bo and Yang, the uh, the the tone of the show might shift to um, you know more LGBTQIA inclusive, and you know, maybe we're already in that direction. But um, as far as you know, male female focused energy, it's hard to say given that the show's in the middle of that shift and figuring out you know where it's going next. Yeah, I you know. It's a it's a great question for Merrick. I I really think it it's it gave me a lot of thought because I do feel like um you know the K80 and Cecily era what it did feel very female focused but like part of it is for good reason, right? You know, they did stay on the show a long time so maybe it felt uh like 
there was like an exclamation point on their era. Like it was just like, you know, so much of it, but for good reason, because there had never been an era like them before, you know, in the entire 40 year history of the show, there had never been a female, you know, you know, focused era. There were really strong female cast members with, you know, Kristen and Tina and Amy. And before that with, you know, Anna and Molly and Jerry and, and Jan, you know, like Jane, there were so many great female cast members, but there was never ones where we really felt like, you know, the women of the cast were just like on this level that was just above all the men on the cast. It's never been something we've seen on the show. So I think it was so poignant over the last 10 years that it's natural to feel a shift right now. But when I think of male focused or female focused eras, I think that those types of cast members shine above the rest of them. And I don't feel now that the men of the cast shine above the women of the cast. I like, I'm not looking at the men on this list and feeling like, okay, Mikey and Keenan, uh, you know, Andrew Bowen, I don't feel like they're shining above Heidi or Chloe or Ego. I feel if anything, it's more even and it is completely up in the air, which cast members are going to be highlighted on a given week. You know, you're going to get a little bit of, you know, all of the repertory players for the most part, maybe minus Punky and Andrew. But I don't feel like this is a male focused or female focused era at this point. I think this is more even. And, you know, with regards to Eric's comment about the host being two thirds male, obviously, you know, on this podcast specifically, we've always advocated to even that out as much as possible. But in the history of the show, you know, like 70% of the hosts or 65% of the hosts have been male. So it's not like I'm not like, it's not like I'm not used to this. So for me, this feels more even keeled and natural, like what the show, not about the host, but about the cast, at least what the show should be, which is that it doesn't feel female focused or male focused. It just feels cast focused. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, I, I mean, the closest, um, you mentioned you don't see the men in this cast shining above the women. I mean, the closest I can, I think they can get to that is Bowen because he's had a lot of, um, standout solo stuff, but I feel like Bowen would shine the best with someone like Ego or he, yeah, he can only really shine when he's uh, playing off one of the, he shines the best when he's playing off the female cast members for me. And yeah, they did start down this trend of um, like 20, 23, 25 years ago of more female focused humor with, especially with the era of Tina, Amy and Maya and Rachel in the early two thousands. And even before that, you could see the shift with um, Molly Shannon, Anna Gasteyer, Sherry O'Terry, but yeah, and they never looked back because they, they realize that they can't really um, return to more, more bro heavy, um, the, like the more bro heavy style of humor they that dominated the, you know, the, the Chris Farley, Adam Sandler, David Spade, even early Will Ferrell and Norm Macdonald tenure. They can't go back to that because um, I just, you know, culturally outside of SNL, uh, we wouldn't be ready for a shift back to that it would the show would get canceled in pretty much not just in the twitter way but in the in the literal nbc says you're done way so uh yeah there there's no going back but they still got to figure out a way to move forward for sure and i think you can have duos right like the jj andrew duo that's developing i think is an exciting duo of putting two male cast members together and seeing what they continue to write and 
put it on the show. So um, for me, I think that's a possibility. And I, and I will just say um, my only disagreement with what you said, Casey, is that uh, I don't think like, you know, Fred and Bill Hader and Seth and, and uh, Andy and Will, like I, those guys, Jason, like I don't think that they were the bro humor of the bad boys of like Spade and Farley and, and Sandler and, and Tim and all those guys, uh, Schneider. But I, I think that they were very male dominated because, you know, Kristen obviously like stood out above the rest, but there was no like female counterparts that were strong enough to, in, you know, besides Kristen probably to match the quality of the male cast in the late two thousands. So I think that did feel male dominated but in not not in the bro way that you are referring to. So I just want, you know, for any listeners who are listening along, I just wanted to point that out. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, like I said, that bro humor is a very early 90s relic. And like you said, Kristen did stand out. So it felt like they had some female representation. There was you know, a balance between male and female humor in there with those days. Um, it was... Is not as much female representation as the previous era, but post Kristen, uh, they figured out a right balance. They could have more, you know, female dominant humor, but a balance between, you know, all the women post Kristen. Because uh, when you look at, um, like around season 40, around that era, I mean, besides Cecily, Kate, and 80, there was that we still had Vanessa Bayer, Leslie Jones, Sashir Zameda. Uh, and then Heidi came along and Ego came along. So, yeah, they've they've balanced it out a bit more. Once they realize that the future of SNL is, is females, then they've got to figure out the, the balance to have different types of uh, female voices shine on the show. For sure. And I think that needed to happen. And I think like, you know, 20 years down the road, we'll look back on it and be like, this was like the women's revolution of SNL, where they really like took over the show in that sense. But what we have now, which might be better for the overall quality of the show is more of an even gender balance in terms of quality of cast member. And I think that that is uh, what we're looking for when we're finally going to get that fourth, you know, quote unquote, golden era of the show. Right, exactly. All right, let's take this next question from our friend Ken George Jones. Ken wants to know, recent episodes have had several attempts at political moments, such as Chloe as Emily Kors, Molly as Randy McNally, and those get to Ken anyways, uh, a muted response, while J.A.J., brought in through political impressions, receive more positive response for branching out from politics than he has for any of the political material he's had this season. The one political piece to get something of buzz was Bowen as George Santos, and I would question whether it has that, that has more to do with Bowen's star power and how huge the Santos story was than it does with any of the material itself. Where does this shift leave SNL going into the presidential primaries, again, with just in Ken's opinion, writers who struggle to write political material and a cast who seems much less interested in throwing themselves into political characters compared to Cecily, Kate, or 80, and are political impressions on SNL now only likely to get a response if the cast member is already a star rather than the impression helping them to make them into a star? So what do you think of Ken's question? And as always, thank Ken. Well, thank you, Ken, for the question. And uh, this is something Ken and few of our mutual friends have been talking about online and um 
the, as, as far back as I remember it, just the history of political humor on SNL, most people pay attention during the elections. And it goes back to, you know, they got a lot of press in around the 90s when Carvey was Bush Sr. and um, uh, Bill Hartman and then Daryl Hammond with Bill Clinton. And that was um, not so much just the politics of it all, but they had a, a strong cast and strong writing that, that era too. Then in the 2000s with the Farrell and Bush era, it was more as just, um, it was more just uh, silly characterizations and things. And um, we saw that with uh, Tina's pale and it then became more, it became more that, um, and this was in the era of the daily show and Colbert becoming real popular. People were just turning to, comedy shows for their news because they thought oh the news was a joke and they needed a comedic take just to process it and get through the times it it just became like the show felt like this was the thing that they were expected to do it was a thing people tuned into them partly because they've been a live show going back so it just became the norm that they were expected to do something on politics even even when they don't have a take or anything to say, just mention it because that's what people want to see. They want to see sketches about it. And they, yo, leaned into it pretty hard with the, uh, the, uh, the Trump era, the Alec Baldwin's Trump era. They just felt like it was a lot to keep up with. They felt like they had to do something on everything. Just, just blow through it all. Just checklist cold opens. We called them just mention everything and move on. Cause it was all so much. And, um, and the thing me and Ken were talking about during that era is that um, it felt like there weren't a lot of writers on staff in that era of the Trump presidency that really wanted to write about politics or were that interested in politics beyond just having a, a silly take or a silly character. And what the show needed was um, just more you know, political writers who want to write something about politics that actually has a point and has something to say and not just making a stand, but having a, an actual point of view on an issue, something to say, and not just like, these are all the things that happened this week. Trump said this, Biden said this, here's a silly character. So it does seem like, um, the show kind of accepted this about itself. And it's maybe this is because there's not a lot, a whole lot going on with politics uh, right now. But it felt like um, since we're moving away from the Trump era, the show's kind of they've all agreed to not write as much about politics unless they actually have something to to say, because we're you know not just I mean, the. Yeah, Bowen is George Santos. That was something they kind of snuck on us in a cold open that was about football, not so much about politics. But, um, but yeah, that was we were expecting like Marcelo and makeup is that guy, but they gave us Bowen instead, and yeah, that works because you know what else could he be lying about? He could be lying about you know not being not being Asian. He could be lying about not being gay. That's he could. What else from his past is he lying about? That's just a, but it's kind of hints of the surface level takes on political things that they, I see them moving away from. And, um, 
yeah, I see hints outside of some of the ways that they've used um, J.J.'s Trump. I've seen hints of the direction that um, they should be moving toward and that, you know, only write about politics when you have an actual political message and not when you just want to jump in on the moment and strike while the iron's hot. Really, the iron's never hot because everyone will be tweeting jokes about it all week and there's all the other late night shows. So, yeah, they um, seems like they've realized they should only write about politics when they have a political point and not just because NBC or Lauren feels they have to have just, um, you know, a silly character, a cast member playing someone. So I do feel like the show is kind of reconfiguring how it views politics in that direction. Once these uh, new writers and cast members will be playing these political roles um, uh, come in. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, Look, I don't think season 48 was ever going to be about politics. Colin Jost is probably the closest thing in modern times to we have a, that we have of a writer who, you know, writes political jokes and I don't think that's like his forte. I think he probably wants to stop doing that now and write more silly things. So, I don't think necessarily that they had planned coming into 48 to even, you know, do politics that much except when it was jj as trump or jj as biden and then you know santos was just such a silly you know person that they had no choice but to go after it but i do think you know 49 and obviously 50 are going to be much more politically heavy and that is the trend of saturday night live and of american politics which is like if you go back and you watch all the seasons you'll see like on the uh, off years where there's no primaries there's no presidential election you know things are much less political on the show so i do think over the summer you know new writers that might come on board might be a little bit more politically focused and that would make sense in terms of hires and that's something we have to watch for and i think like you have to expect like you know biden's probably going to rerun so democratic you know politics over the next couple of years is pretty straightforward up until the actual debates between the you know winner of the uh republicans primaries and then you know versus biden but on the republican side i mean you know the thing is is like we're sort of set up for I know politics is serious and a lot of people, you know, these are real life issues for a lot of people, but just from like a comedic standpoint, we're set up for like some of the craziest stuff we might ever see between like, you know, DeSantis and Trump and like all the other cast of characters that might end up running on the Republican side. So that's probably going to be the focus of a lot of uh, political cold opens and sketches over the next couple of years. So, you know, I know and I would expect that SNL is looking for their DeSantis. You know, I think it's a very um, it's a very deliberate choice that Saturday Night Live has made to not have anyone play DeSantis yet because they don't want, uh, you know, to establish that cast member as the DeSantis, knowing how important that uh, that you know, player will be over the next couple of years. So I think we're in a little bit of a holding pattern until these things start to break out and become more pertinent to the show. Saying all of that, 
Um, I think that the, you know, types of politics we've seen this year are so like benign to me, Ken, that I don't really like think about it too much as like SNL is doing a good job with it or not, because it's just so not a part of the story of, of 48 for me. It's more about like, you know, sort of redefining what this era will look like, uh, establishing the new cast members, building what will be the crew going forward over the next several years. And then, you know, Obviously, the eyeballs will turn towards Saturday Night Live on a much bigger level once the politics starts heading back in. And we know that, Casey, because if you go watch the YouTube views on SNL, you'll see that all the political cold opens obviously have the highest views. So politics is always watching SNL. And I think we're going to have uh, a lot more of an answer for Ken and for anyone else who's interested in this once we get going on these primaries and eventually the general election. Yeah, I agree. And what you mentioned about the political stuff just by itself on YouTube having the most views, that also speaks to what I mentioned about SNL's history, because they have kind of a wide audience. There's some people, you know, young people watching for today's cast. They they got them into the show and introduced to it. And there's, you know, older people like like our parents and in some cases our grandparents, let's be honest. The, the older generation, the the baby boomers who you know, what they don't stay up to watch it live, and they certainly don't do podcasts about it like us. But they, they, they just stick with it because it's a show they've known throughout the years, and they mainly want to see what they'll have to say about politics. So they'll, you maybe just look on YouTube to see what's political, and and maybe the rest of the humor they feel like is you know beneath them, or just they don't get it. They think they're too old for it. Like I. I literally have a coworker at my job who I heard say, oh, I watch Saturday Night Live. I just watch the weekend update with Colin Jost and Michael Che. The rest of it's just crap. So so that's always going to be a part of their audience. And um, yeah, and I mentioned, like you said, you did say Colin Jost didn't want to really write about politics. Or that was pretty obvious during the, the Trump era. But now he seems to be more into, you know, saving his you know, more pointed and focused jabs about, you know, politicians like Ron DeSantis and even Biden and Trump. He's saving that for Weekend Update, which is a one one thing that people say the show should do. Oh, if you want to talk about politics, fine, just save it for Weekend Update. Just confine it to the actual news. And um, and yeah, I think Jost now that he has a now the stakes are low politically for the show. And, you know, he has a you know, clap to do this. He's maybe stood up and said, hey, let's let's save our political takes for a weekend update or for now. And then we'll, you know, while we reconfigure the rest of the show and figure out where America's headed politically and where we're going to follow the political. Makes sense. All right. Let's take this next question from Fred. Fred says, Looks like Dismukes and JAJ have hit it off. What other pairing would you like to see? Better yet, what could be strangely bizarre to see? So do you have another you know, pick for a good pairing between the cast and any bizarre pairing that you would pick? Well, I mean, I'd say Ego and Bo and really Ego and anyone. She just has, she just has chemistry with a lot of people, just, uh, but mainly... Ego and Bowen for the purposes of answering this question the way that it was phrased. So I'd say Ego and Bowen is something I like to see more. And a bizarre pairing that uh, we might have seen a little bit of 
or might have heard about getting cut in dress that I'd like to see more of that would be strange would be uh, Sarah Sherman and Chloe Fineman. Just because, you know, you know, Sarah could be in a pairing with anyone and it would it would work great. But I'd like to see more of her and Chloe together much more than I'd like to see uh, Chloe and Heidi together because the uh, Chloe-Heidi pairings haven't worked that well for me. But, um, yeah, Sarah and even Sarah and Heidi would work great together, but mostly... Even, you know, Ego and Sarah would be my dream pairing, but um, just, yeah, just really Ego and Bowen, Ego and Sarah, Sarah and Chloe, uh, even Sarah and Heidi, just to see how that would work. Um, but mainly just any combination of um, Ego and Sarah, whether it be them together or each of them with someone else. Those are great picks. I think, you know, two pairings we heard about prior to the season, which we really haven't seen on the show, but I think could potentially be a part of the future of the show would be Andrew Dismukes and Michael Longfellow. I think that would be a, you know, a pairing that, you know, they've obviously worked together in the past outside of SNL and would be great to see them together on the show more. And the other one would be Molly Carney and Sarah Sherman. I would love to see them together. I think those are pairings that make sense and that, you know, given the opportunity could really stand out on the show. So uh, that would be fun to me. And then, you know, maybe a little bit of a bizarre pairing, but one that we saw recently was is Mikey Day and Punky Johnson, just this pairing that we didn't expect to see on Weekend Update, but maybe we could see them in sketches together, considering uh, Mikey's you know ability to stretch himself. I would love to see what he could do with Punky. So I think those would be my picks. Yeah, those are all great picks. And I'd like to add, um, yeah, Longfellow Marcello would be a good pairing just because um, it makes the most sense because they came up together the same year. So they're kind of, you know, bros from the same, you know, featured cast of that title. Again, that title didn't mean anything, but yeah, two guys from the you know, same year came up together and just seemed to have, if not similar sensibilities, just the sense that they could play well off each other that I'd like to see too. For sure. Okay, next up, we got a question from Curly Joe. Curly asks, will the strike affect non-sketch pre-tapes? Example, like the host and musical guest portion of the opening credits or the next week promo. What do you think of that, Casey? Any speculation? I mean, the most I would think would be um, whoever hosts, you know, April 8th and 15th and in May may just have to have... um, just still photos of themselves uh, in that part of the credits like they did in um, season, like pre-season 42. Maybe just go to still photos. I I know their photographer, Mar- Mary Ellen Matthews. I don't know if she's that closely associated with the um, post-production unit, but yeah, still photos and maybe um, as far as like next week's host announcements, um, they could either... A, stick to just posting them on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, just social media, and not announce them during the show, just announce them through press release and social media, or go back to what they did um, in, in at least the first 10 seasons of the show, if not the first uh, 12 or 13, where instead of having title cards in the middle of the show, they just have... They used to have Don Pardo do this now, just have Daryl Hammond do it. Just say, next week, on this, at the very end, over the credits, just announce 
vocally. Next week, uh, this host and this musical guest will be on the show just at the end over the credits. This is Daryl Heyman saying goodnight. So those might be their only options, really. Yeah, I think, um, you know, one area that might be affected will be the pre-produced promos that we've been getting this season, the ones that come out on Wednesday, where we get like a sort of like a mini commercial with the host arriving at the show. Um, Those could potentially be affected. I still think they would do the like, hi, I'm Don Schneider, and I'm hosting Saturday Night Live this week with musical guest Casey Killingsworth. Like, I think like that one will probably still happen. And the reason is because those are not meant for... Um, you know, you, you see them on social media, but they're not really meant for social media. They're actually meant for the NBC affiliates where they can have them as commercial time to promote the show. I think they would probably still find a way to do those. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's all a little bit up in the air curly to see what's going to happen here. We haven't gotten any news yet that, you know, progress has been made. It could be a very last minute thing if things come together. But if not, we're sort of headed towards a very interesting show on April 1st. And again, I want to reiterate our support goes with the film unit and hoping that they get properly compensated. Uh, but I will say from a storyline perspective, a lot of question marks and we'll create a very interesting um, analysis of what we're expecting to get on April 1st. Yeah, I agree. And um, yeah, they did. I mean, during COVID, they went like two, two whole years without those pre-produced cinematic promos that started uh, between 16 and 19 from seasons 42 to mid 45. So I no big loss there. We've seen the show without them. But um, yeah, just those live promos work and just still photos and just post announcements just if they're in text form, just on social media and just have uh, Daryl Hammond announce them at the end of the show over the credits, that'll, that'll keep people like me tuned in just to wait to see who's hosting. And yeah, I think yeah, they would actually have to air the full credits though, Casey, for that to work. They could do a combination of both. They could um, yeah, yeah. just announce them on social media in case they have to cut off the credits for whatever reason. For sure. Okay, next question came in from Anonymous. Anonymous asks, uh, should we boycott the April 1st show if a strike is approved? Casey, are you going to boycott the April 1st show? Um, I haven't decided yet. Um, I, well, I do hope, again, like you said, we do support uh, all the unions that work on SNL, be they writers, be they editors, be they crew members, uh, film directors, producers, anyone in a union we at the Saturday night network support you and what you do and you should be compensated fairly. Um, but I, and we do hope that they negotiate with NBC to get what they're uh, bargaining for. Um, but I, it's a personal choice really. And, you know, I'm kind of weighing it out because, um, you know, without getting too much into my own personal life, I've had to, actually do something similar my own job for you know similar reasons to uh you know what they're what the post-production unit is doing so um you know if i watched live on april 1st i'd feel like kind of a hypocrite but then then again um a lot of people posted on social media like well i'm i'm not gonna watch when they have Donald Trump host or Elon Musk host or Kim Kardashian host or Dave Chappelle host. Now people 
I mean, people stage their own, have announced that they're going to stage their own personal boycott of the show for a week because they, they, they really don't like who the host is or the type of person they are. But they, you know, could have watched next week. And, you know, I, I've, you know, watched all those shows just, um, putting the host aside, just out of a love of the show and just seeing how the, well, not to say how the show will weather the storm, but how the show could survive that week, getting through a week with, um, not a difficult host for them is just, um, a controversial lightning rod of a host. So, Honestly, it's um, it's up to you. It's your own personal choice, and um, I would I would like to think you can still watch the show while still supporting uh, unions. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, at, at worst, you're just giving NBC ratings and not your money. You're not giving them your financial support, just your your viewership. But um, uh, it's to to each their own on this, really. And you just got to think about how it affects you and just how you feel about the situation. For sure. I mean, like, uh, I, I think you can separate those two things. I don't judge anyone who decides not to watch the show. I think even when it comes to our podcasters and different personalities on the network, if they choose to not watch this show, you know, that that is uh, completely up to them. I hold no requirements of them watching it unless they want to come onto the podcast and talk about that particular episode, then obviously then I would need them to watch the show. But uh, for me personally, I, I have to watch the show. This is, you know, this is my job. I mean, I, I'm here to talk about Saturday Night Live and um, very blessed that, you know, the patrons and that our YouTube channel growth and uh, the growing of this podcast has allowed me to do this on a more, uh, you know, you know, full-time basis. And, um, you know, I'm sort of like in it, you know, to see what happens. As long as there's an episode, I sort of have to be there. And, uh, you know, our relationship with NBC as a podcast is a very good one. We're very fortunate that we have regular communication with people at NBC and cast members and crew and all of that stuff. And, um, you know, I just would like to, you know, be able to support them, but also understand that, you know, we, we're here to document what went on. And if a show does go on, we still need to be able to talk about it. And if you're not comfortable with watching the show and you want to come on, you know, to watch our podcast talking about it so you understand what the sketches were and what people thought about them, that's okay. Like, I mean, I know I'm sort of pitching people to come here, but you're not giving NBC a dime by coming to support us and watch the podcast that week. So uh, I would hope that if you don't watch the show, but you enjoy the podcast, you don't tune out of our podcast that, that week. And uh, we'll try and maybe be a little bit extra um, explanatory in terms of the sketches that week in case you decided not to watch. Yeah. Now, now, just to be clear and remind everyone, it's just the post-production film units, the editors that are set to strike on April right. 1st now. And again, the writers are set to renegotiate their contract in late April, early May. And that could potentially be another strike. Now, if the writers go on strike again, like they've done in the past, then the decision, to, the the decision to watch or not watch would very much be made for you. There'd be no show to watch. But it did. But I did remind we lived through the um the season thirty three WGA oh seven oh eight writer strike and I remember that era, not just SNL, but the late night shows like Conan, David Letterman, they all went on strike for you know, November, December of oh seven. 
but um, Conan uh, worked out a deal to, and you know, John Stewart, couple of those guys worked out a deal to, you know, come back in January, February of 08, and the strike with the writers hadn't been resolved yet, so they had to do the show without writers. And one thing that stood out to me was Conan with a beard that my sister said made him look like a leprechaun. Conan said on the air during those early 08 shows that our writers are still on strike, but we support them and we hope they're getting everything they're bargaining for. So, so yeah, you can still watch a show that has staff going on strike and, you know, not count it against your support, you know, going the support for that union that's striking them getting with it because yeah you can you can separate those two things uh pretty easily but again that's that's up to you totally agree great point casey and we will keep you posted about what is happening with that potential strike so we will see Okay, uh, let's turn our attention to some stuff in the future. We have a question from Manette who wants to know, will John Mulaney host SNL this season? Do you want him to host? So, Casey, we're on Mulaney Watch. Only five potential episodes left for him to continue the streak. Do you think we're going to get a Mulaney 6? Uh, this this is like the second time, second year in a row, I found myself on one of these patron feedback shows talking about what's John Mulaney going to do? and Personally, I think I could live without seeing him hosting for a sixth time. Um, part of me is thinking, well, he could do something with um, Michael Longfellow, Marley Carney, Devin Walker, uh, Marcel, he could, Marcel Duran. He, he could do something with um, those people to help get them on the air. But And he did uh, do you know something with uh, Sarah Sherman, but that's that's more of the uh that's more of the 2018 2019 Mulaney than the the Mulaney we saw host in the early 2020s um just sad to say it seemed like Mulaney has kind of um you know with all due respect to John Mulaney he's a talented writer but he settled into a little bit too much of a complacency for me and um I mean, he's a five timer. I think he should, um, I think he should pack it in. You know, he can, I'm sure the show's happy. Lauren's happy to have him back whenever he wants and he can return whenever he wants. But, um, I first, maybe Mulaney should take a, like a full season off from at least one season off from hosting before it becomes back. And I, I do, me and Ken were talking. And I do see, um, if a potential strike, if a potential writer strike happens that would end the season on April 15th, uh, they may want to go with John Mulaney as just a, a safe security blanket of a host to make sure the show ends on, you know, uh, not so much a hot streak, but just like, like a warm blanket, something that that will leave people with something they're familiar with, something they, they like seeing, but um, yeah, I could, I could go either way on it, really. And, you know, Mulaney did really defy our expectations a year ago when he hosted because, well, mainly because he he did do some creative stuff. I mean, and he didn't, and he talked about his personal life in a way that was, um, that was, uh, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? He talked about his personal life in a way that um, it was surprisingly funny and not too, 
too much about himself. Um, but yeah, and, and they didn't have Pete there to talk about Kanye, but that was probably for his own personal safety slash. What a different time that was. Yeah, and, and they did go there. And that was a big, the start of the war in Ukraine. And they went the safe route right. by doing a somber song called Open. So they made the right combination of, you know, safe choices and creative choices when Mulaney hosted last time. And they could pull that off again, but um, if, if he does host, I'll tune in. But if he doesn't, I I wouldn't mind. I'm kind of on the fence about Mulaney personally. John, what do you think? I think that I wouldn't be upset if we had a little bit of a break from John Mulaney. I think it's always fun to get these John Goodman like streaks and potentially have like, I mean, this is like a very rare occurrence in modern times to have somebody host this often in this short a time. But I do think that uh, Mulaney's episode was surprisingly outstanding. Like he has brought greatness to the show before, but it was like on a trajectory that I didn't expect it to be like as amazing as that episode was last season. And I think that it could potentially be in our best interest to end on a high for a little bit and then build the hype around the return of Mulaney in 49 or 50, because he is like a very important young modern day host uh, of, of like, you know, he's, he's a renowned host that we don't always get in modern times. And I think like when it comes to talking about celebrating the history of the show and what hosts we might get in season 50, I think it makes sense that John Mulaney is one of those. So if we don't see him between now and then, I wouldn't be upset about it. Yeah, and I mean, he, he did say he is an important host in modern SNL history. A lot of, I'll say a lot of young people gravitated towards him and then, you know, recent developments in his personal life, you know, divorcing his wife and having a baby with Olivia. People thought, people felt like they trusted him and then they felt like, oh, he's not really the the safe guy to look up to that we thought he was and i think him him sharing a stage with dave Chappelle at one point bringing him as a surprise guest on his tour really cemented that for a lot of people but again that is a personal thing yeah but i mean more like on the show casey like i feel like he's just like an important host um yeah in modern times like i don't think that there is like maybe besides paul rudd i don't think that there's like a five-timer in the last few years that like i would consider like a modern five-timer that's going to continue to return to the show that we expect to be around. And I think like he's like the forties of SNL. He's like that era's host, you know? Yeah. And he can, he can't separate his personal drama from the show when he's on the show and, uh, you know, you know, bring the funny and give us uh, creative sketches still. So, um, so yeah, I wouldn't mind him hosting again, but you know, it's, uh, he can, he can take a break if he wants. I also think he's sort of like going to be like the Hanks of the future where like when SNL like needs a guy to be like the host of hosts to like, we know, you know, Hanks was the guy when we had a Omicron episode, when we had a at home episode to welcome us in. Like, I think he's like the future of that, where when SNL like needs a host to like come in to do something special, I think that's Mulaney. So at least, you know, as long as they feel like they can trust him. And I think that's the case right now. So as long as he's doing better, he's in a good place and he continues to grow and, and work and do great things. I think that that, you know, he's the future of that. Right. And I agree in that what that first at home episode, they did a tribute to um, Hal Wilmer, the, the musical director who's been there 40 years. 
and they brought in a ton of former cast to literally sing his praises. And Mulaney was was a part of that. Him and Adrian Armisen gave this uh, very beautiful, moving tribute to him. And I, I don't, I can't remember the last time I've seen the show give that in depth of a tribute to uh, a cast member, a staff member who, uh, and it felt like the whole reason they were doing these at home episodes at the beginning of COVID was in his honor. Mulaney was a part of that. So, uh, yeah, he cemented his place in the history of the show and uh, they trust him to represent his part of that history. All right, let's get to our last couple of questions from this week. Uh, Nick Store asks, uh, Nick keeps seeing Pedro Pascal and Oscar Isaac together and think they'd be a fun hosting pair together to come back for SNL. Would you have another pair that would make a good hosting duo, very similar to like we saw Marty and Steve earlier this season? So uh, Pedro Pascal and Oscar Isaac for you or another pair that you think of, Casey? They would work. I mean, other pairs I've thought of, um, Jenna Ortega and Aubrey Plaza. They're yeah. Both, yeah, they're both similar people. They're both similar actresses, and they've hosted strong episodes recently. So imagine what they could do playing off each other. Um, I'll say um, Michael B. Jordan and Sterling K. Brown, both Black Panther co-stars who hosted really strong episodes in their, like my personal top five episodes of their specific seasons. And, um, and just so I'm not totally picking people who've been on the show before this season or last season, I'm going to put it, it might be a missed opportunity now, but I'm going to put this out there. Daniel Radcliffe and Weird Al Yankovic. And, <laughs> and in case you don't know, um, Al wrote and produced, he didn't direct, but he wrote and produced his own, his own fake biopic for the Roku channel called Weird, the Al Yankovic story. And, he handpicked Daniel Radcliffe to play him, but a young 80s version of him with glasses and a mustache in that movie. And uh, he did a phenomenal job. He brought the right energy to the role, and it was a great movie. Check it out if you can. But that's, uh, that's another pairing I'd like to see, but maybe I'm a little bit biased. Yeah, I wouldn't hate seeing Jason Sudeikis and Brett Goldstein together coming up for Ted Lasso. So uh, that could be a fun one that I thought of. But yeah, totally agree with your picks, Casey. Uh, always great. I don't think we're getting another duo this season. I think it's very rare when we get them. It's like a once every few seasons thing. So um, could be could be fun. And we did have a lot of fun discussions about that on the Marty and Steve week. All right, let's take this last question from Donald Dominguez. Uh, Donald and Dominguez uh, said, what's your goal for the season as we wrap up with the next six shows? So any goals of yours, Casey, that you would like to see from the show? Well, my main goal is to, um, I mean, first of all, to for the show to finish the season working out deals with their writers and their you know, post-production editors union to get them paid fairly get them what they want because i think they're making reasonable requests and my other goal would be i guess with the last six shows of the season to get some sense some idea of um just where the show is is headed going into the next season because it's a transitional year and um whether that means you know figuring out what they're gonna do about politics or or just having breakout, more breakout moments from Devin and Sarah and Longfellow, Marcelo and JJ and just the, the new people, just, um, just figuring out where they're going, who's going to anchor the show, 
uh, at least until season 50 and just um it's just what their general just view of the world is going to be as far as this uh, topicality and how they don't approach politics uh when they have something to say on yeah, I think my goal for the final six would be I don't want any shutouts in the next six. I don't think it's necessary in a cast now of you know less than what we've had last year in terms of size. I don't feel like people like Molly and Andrew should be shut out. I want to see everybody involved. I know some things are circumstantial where just certain sketches get cut and you know you can't always uh, plan that out. But that would be my hope. Would that be everything comes together where we get enough of everybody? Um, I would like to see Sarah Sherman return to form. I think that would be very important for me as we start to wrap up the season. And I would really like appreciate uh, a really good episode from Andrew Dismukes. I, you know, I want like a, at least one of these last six to be Andrew focused. So uh, that would be great. Otherwise, I mean, um, you know, going just to, going down the list of cast members. I mean, I'm really uh, maybe Michael Longfellow. You know, sort of you know finding his place at the show a little bit more. I think would be good, but. Otherwise, I feel really good. I think this has been a very strong season of the show. I think we're going to look back, like Casey said, that this was a transitional year, but one that was a very positive transition. I don't feel like we're transitioning into something negative. I think after the season, and we're going to have plenty of time to discuss the season all throughout the summer, I think we're going to be talking about a lot of good things headed into 49. So uh, I'm very thankful that I got to talk to Casey Killingsworth so much this season about, you know, both in the chat and on the podcast a little bit about this uh, this season of SNL. And I appreciate all of your thoughts tonight, Casey. So thank you for joining us. You're welcome, John. It's always great to talk to you too. And um, I, I hope to be back on here just um, uh, at least um, after the start of season 48. But uh, yeah, I always look forward to it. I'm always glad to support the Saturday Night Network any way I can. Absolutely. Well, Casey, please tell the listeners where they can find out everything that you are doing. Well, you can follow me on Twitter at Killingsworth27. I'm on Instagram, KCK27. I'm not really posting there, but I am um, active on Twitter, and I am tweeting links to my blog now, and um, and I'm posting them in the Discord, and yeah, so you feel Twitter and Discord mainly, but I am doing something uh, very special with my blog this year. Um, so I was talking to our friend Blood Meridian in the DMs on Twitter, and um, he said it was the one-year anniversary of his blog, and I um, casually mentioned that um, this year, specifically this January 2023, when I made a special post when I thank you and our friend Andrew Dick and Blood Meridian, a lot of people, this year, 2023, is the 10th anniversary of the start of my blog. And yeah, so he convinced Blood Marine, he convinced me to do something um, special for that. Um, I've been blogging for 10 years, but I've been writing reviews for now to punk message boards for uh, about 15. So, so my first four years of reviews are just lost to the history of time. Thank God I wasn't that good of a writer then. But yeah, my... Um, my reviews of the past 10 years are on my blog, and since it's been 10 years, I'm doing this thing where I'm inviting you, my longtime readers, to be a part of it. Um, I had uh, Bowen, uh, Blood Meridian asked me to if I could, if he could do a special tribute to me, so I let him write his own guest blog or his guest post on my blog. He's the first guest author I've ever had, and I'm also answering fan questions um a couple months ago our friend ken george jones submitted one that i answered on the blog 
back in January. So yeah, if you do want to write a guest post on my blog, or if you want to submit a fan question that you want me to answer, just um, uh, hit me up in the in the DMs on Twitter or on Discord or leave a comment on the blog if you want to be a part of this thing that I've uh, built and maintained over the past 10 years of my life. Congratulations, Casey. Always amazing getting to read all your thoughts. And I hope that people do reach out to you and get involved. So uh, make sure to find Casey Killingsworth at Killingsworth27, wherever you can find him. So thanks for joining us, Casey. And of course, uh, what we have coming up next is a very fun talk with Daryl Hammond on Monday night. Yes, the real Daryl Hammond joining us on Monday night for an episode of SNL Stories. And one of the great perks of being a patron here was we asked our patrons to submit some questions to Daryl. So Daryl was able to answer some questions from the patrons and you can continue to send in your questions for SNL Stories guests if you become a patron at patreon.com slash the SNL network. And of course, sign up for these patron feedback shows where we can talk some Saturday Night Live each and every week about the show. So that is a great perk of that. You can find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram at the SNL network. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on YouTube. Apple Podcast and Spotify. We will also be back for a super fan takeover the following week and hopefully something else along the way. And then we will be back for Quinta Brunson and musical guest Lil Yachty on April 1st. Hopefully, whether you're watching the episode or not, you'll at least join us. So for Casey Killingsworth and everybody in the chat, my name is John Schneider from the Saturday Night Network. We will see you next time, everybody. Have a good one. <laughs>